Hey, this is Len Casper, the TV voice of the Chicago Cubs. You're listening to the Friendly Confines podcast with Chad and Ryan. Rhino, yet another, and and very excited about this one, special edition of the Friendly Confines are basically taking our seventh inning stretch guest conductor. This is a special one. Oh, Chad, it is so remarkable when we were able to get guests like this, someone who really has taken a lot of time to, you know, cultivate the relationships in baseball and really show how important what he does day in and day out is. Bob Kendrick is the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and it is the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. And of course, the role that the Negro Leagues played in creating such wonderful players. Of course, we all know Jackie Robinson, the first black baseball player in all of the majors and the impact that he had. But there's so many other amazing players. And for the Cubs, some people not, you know, may not even realize, Chad, that Ernie Banks was the first black player to play for the Chicago Cubs and Bob Kendrick tells stories with such eloquence and grace it was so wonderful to listen to him and we felt this was such an important episode and interview to talk to Bob about all things going on with what they are doing to celebrate this milestone such a a a great band such an incredible cause I can't wait to visit it the next time I find myself in, in Kansas City. Some great stories, as you shared. Uh, um, you know, he talks about Ernie Banks and his role uh, and, and really how he made his move into the Major League Base. I never heard the story. So to hear from Bob, to hear to hear that inside story was pretty amazing. We're pretty excited to be able to share stories like this with you. Absolutely. So stay tuned because this is Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Museum, in this special edition of the Friendly Confines. Time now for the seventh inning stretch here on the Friendly Confines, and we are so excited for our guests this week. Of course, one of the most important, I think, baseball museums that are out there, Chad, is the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And our next guest has done such a wonderful job of getting the word out and making this museum one of the must-see places to visit if you are a baseball fan. It is our pleasure to bring in the president of the Negro League Museum, Mr. Bob Kendrick. Bob, welcome to the Friendly Confines with Chad and Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, guys, it's my pleasure. Thanks for thanks so much for having me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's great to talk to you, especially with, obviously, so much to talk about uh, with you. Um, first, of course, uh, let's talk about the 100-year anniversary of the Negro Leagues. Um, what is it... I guess, mean to you to know what an impact that this league has had 100 years later uh, as we celebrate, um, you know, the 100-year anniversary and we have so many people around the world recognizing the impact that this league had? Oh, it it means a great deal. I mean, there's a, a level of tremendous pride that goes along with the effort that we've generated to help people understand the significance of what the centennial celebration of the Negro Leagues is all about. 
if you understand the inner workings of not-for-profit organizations, you realize that we are always looking for an anniversary that we can hang our hat on. You know, we'll make up an anniversary if we think we can raise money <laughs> in and around it. But this anniversary is legit. It was significant. It is truly a milestone occasion, not just in baseball history, but in American history. And we think that the formation of the Negro Leagues is one of the most significant things to happen in this country's history. And so it was giving the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum a tremendous platform to help educate people about the history of the Negro Leagues and, and, and its significance both on and off the field. And guys, the off the field aspect of this story may be even more profound than the great players and teams who helped create this very dynamic, vibrant league. And, and so, yeah, it, was, it has been a tremendous platform. Obviously, we're still reeling like most of the country is at this point in time with all of us who've had to deal with this whole COVID-19 pandemic that kind of helped derail some of the things that we had planned and certainly from the magnitude in which we had planned them, but it still does not diminish the significance of what this year represents uh, to the Negro League Baseball Museum and hopefully to, to both fans of the game and fans of history around the world. Well, we definitely wanted to talk about both on and off the field. And, you know, when people think about players that uh, that they know of and they're very well aware of uh, um, in Major League Baseball, they may not have known that they got their start in the Negro League. So you've got players like Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and the Cubbies' Ernie Banks and obviously Jackie Robinson, such an important person. But then you go back in time, Buck O'Neill, Satchel Paige, uh, Cool Papa Bell. Um, when you hear people, so I want to transition to ask this question. When you hear people talk about the all-time greats of baseball, it's a very white group, right? And and you, how do you have that conversation with people to just share? Oh man, I mean, just just imagine if 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 these these two leagues were combined a hundred years ago, how different baseball would look. Oh, and it, and it would have. You know, I think that's the question that is really kind of thought about when people come here to the Negro Leagues Museum, and that's the question of what if. What if the doors had opened sooner? If they they opened before 1947, and the cool Papa Bells and the Josh Gibsons of the world, the Hilton Smiths, the Boojum Wilsons, the Martin DeHigos of the world would have had an opportunity to show their stuff right alongside their white counterparts how different our game would be. And I can tell you this, and I say this with with no level of uncertainty, the record books would be entirely different. And and I can make that, and I don't know how, I don't really think it's that bold of a statement, because all you have to do is look at what happened after the doors opened. The transition of many of those stars who left the Negro Leagues to go into Major League Baseball and the immediate impact that they had on the sport. One of my favorite factoids that we proudly display here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, I think, quantifies that statement. From 1949 to 1959, nine of 11 National League Most Valuable Players were former Negro League stars. Yeah, and and so they made a tremendous impact. So it's not far-fetched 
I don't believe to think that there might have been players who were better than they were <laughs> who didn't get that opportunity. And, and so as we look around today, and you mentioned the two names right off the bat, but I think if we were to poll a reasonable number of baseball fans and you were to ask them who are the two greatest living major leaguers today, I don't think you'll get much debate. Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. And guys, both of them come out of the Negro Leagues. That's a sampling of the talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. They were good young players in the Negro Leagues who developed to become two of the greatest players in baseball history. Both of those guys are going to be in everybody's top five. Mays is widely regarded as having been the best in Major League Baseball history. I'm an Aaron guy myself, but, you know, I'm biased. He's my all-time <laughs> favorite player. And so, <laughs> That's and so but you're not going to get much debate about them being the two greatest living players. Well, when I hear someone of the level and esteemed respect that I have for a guy like Monty Irvin, who I got to know so very well, and when he says that I played – with Willie Mays, and he did, with the New York Giants. And I played against Henry Aaron, and neither of them are Josh Gibson. It just makes you stop and wonder, damn, how good was Josh Gibson? Yeah, and and what his impact would have been on the stage with all the great players taking the field. Because I don't want to just uh, leave it out there and think that, you know, the major leagues had all the great players. Man, there were so many great players there in the Negro League. So what would our sport look like had the best of the best gotten an opportunity to compete with and against one another? The one thing that we know is our game would have been better because we already saw the improvement in our sport after the doors opened. And, And so it makes you ponder if Satchel gets there in his prime, perhaps the, uh, you know, the Cy Young Award could have very easily been the Satchel Page Award. Mm. You know, those kinds of things. And so as fans, I oftentimes say, we were cheated. Yeah, because we should have seen the best compete against one another. So true. Such a such an uh, absolutely true statement there. And, and Bob, this kind of segues kind of interestingly enough into what I want to ask you when it comes to today's African-American players playing in Major League Baseball. Um, Ian Desmond came out recently and said that he's not going to play this year um, because of the current climate, feeling that only 8% of Major League Baseball players are African-American, one general manager, no majority owners. Um, From your perspective, what would you like to see happen to bring more opportunities to black children in America so they can see how wonderful the game of baseball is. Well, and and I think you just touched on it. It's it's about creating the opportunity. It's about bridging the gap that has occurred between baseball and the African-American community. And that gap has gotten wider, you know, over recent years. And, And we want all children to play this sport. We really do because it's a great sport. And it's a wonderful sport that teaches you so much about life to yourself. You learn a lot about yourself playing this game, and it prepares you for real-world experiences 
really unlike any of the other sports because, as you both know, baseball at its crux is a game of failure. You fail more times than you succeed in this sport. You know, if you get three hits every ten trips to the bat, man, you're a Hall of Famer. That's how tough our sport really is. And so that means seven times you went back to the dugout and you didn't get the job done. And, and yet in a critical situation, you've now got to get back up there and figure out how to hit this guy when you've had no success against him in, in maybe seven previous trips. And, and so you learn a lot about yourself, your character, your makeup, and you understand what it means to work as a unit, as a team. And so, yeah, we want our children to fall in love with this sport and be nurtured and grow in this sport. We have to make sure, though, that the socioeconomic aspects of what has prevented now a lot of kids from having a chance to play the sport, that we bridge that gap. We want to make sure that every child has this opportunity. Now, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But we don't want it to be because you can't afford to play. And, and sadly, our sport has gone from a blue-collar sport to what is essentially now a country club sport. Because sad to say, the sport is no longer played on the sandlot as it was when I was a kid. And, and it hurts me to say that those days of sandlot baseball are gone. I hope I'm wrong, guys. But I don't honestly think we'll ever see Sandlot baseball again. Though so not that not that era that we all kind of grew up where you got the neighborhood kids together and you just played. It didn't even matter whether you had nine on a team or not. You just made up the rules. You divided the kids equally, and then you made up the rules. If you hit the ball in Mrs. Jones' yard, you were out. And, and, and that's the way you played. And on the playground, you became your favorite player. You know, so – on the fan lot, I was Henry Aaron, and everybody knew I was going to be Henry Aaron. Nobody else could be Henry Aaron but me. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and, and that's how you fell in love with the game. Well, today, because the way it's played now, man, I know people who are paying essentially college tuition for their kids to play summer baseball and then to to have the specialized training that goes along with it, pitching and hitting coaches and these exorbitant league fees to play on travel teams so that you can be seen. There are a lot of people that just simply cannot afford that. And for those folks, we have to be able to bridge the gap. One of the things that I'm most proud of is the fact that Major League Baseball and the Players Association, along with our Kansas City Royals and the great city of Kansas City, have built an urban youth baseball academy right behind the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I know in Chicago the White Sox have invested greatly in creating opportunities for urban kids to play. And, and so it is these kinds of significant investments that we really need to make because you're investing in people. There's no greater investment that we can make than in people in providing an opportunity for, for them to succeed and to grow as productive human beings uh, and citizens in our country. And I think that's what we have to continue to do. I applaud baseball because they recognize that there is a problem that needs to be addressed, and they're starting to put in measures to do so. Well, we're thrilled to be a part of that because, as you all know, you have to see yourself in order to aspire. And when they come here to the Negro Leagues Museum, they see themselves. They see people who look just like them. 
They see people who played this game as well as anyone ever played this game. And, and, and that's too important, and that's why we're so pleased to be a partner with Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball's Player Association to try and create the solution to what has happened in terms of the lack of participation by African Americans at the Major League level. So obviously, Bob, you are a big Hank Aaron guy. Um, as you can imagine, <laughs> I'm a bit of an Ernie Banks guy myself. Uh, when you think Absolutely. about you think about uh, what what uh, sort of things uh, that a Cubs fan or even a White Sox fan, if they just stumbled upon our podcast on accident, uh, what what sort of things would they get to enjoy um, around Ernie Banks or others uh, at the museum? Well, you know, Ernie plays a big role in this story because Ernie's mentor was the great Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill was the founder of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Buck O'Neill was like a surrogate father to Ernie Banks. He signs Ernie to the Kansas City Monarchs and then essentially orchestrates the move that sent Ernie to your Chicago Cubs, uh, along with Gene Baker. Gene Baker goes up to the Cubs, and of course, Ernie Banks and Gene Baker formed the major's first all-black double-play tandem. And both had played here for the Kansas City Monarchs. Well, the legendary cool Papa Bell sees Ernie Banks playing in Dallas. And he calls Buck and, and recommends to Buck that he signs Ernie Banks. Buck O'Neill takes cool Papa Bell's recommendation, basically sight unseen, comes down and comes down to Dallas and he signs Ernie Banks. Well, if cool Papa Bell recommends you, you must be pretty doggone good. <laughs> and, and Ernie was pretty doggone good. And Ernie, if he was alive today, he'd tell you he owes his career. He owed his career to Buck O'Neill, who not only taught him about playing the game, but he also taught him how to be a man. He taught him social skills. He taught him how to dress. He, you know, and that bubbly, joyous personality that you saw from Ernie, that was Buck O'Neill. Yeah, Ernie was a bit of an introvert when he first came. And, and then the joy of baseball really hit him. And he talked with such great joy about his time in the Negro Leagues. And, and guys, I don't know if you were aware of this, but his roommate when Ernie played for the Kansas City Monarchs was Elston Howard, the first black Yankee. And they stayed at the Street Hotel, which was the black-owned hotel right down on the corner of historic 18th and Vine here in Kansas City, where the museum is located. And Ernie would tell me stories of the fact that he and Ellie would stay up late at night, and they would dream. They were dreaming, dreaming out loud of which one of them would get to the major leagues first. Because at that point in time, Jackie had broken the color barrier. So now this is not a pipe dream. Yeah, this is not a pipe dream. I know I've got an opportunity. And, and as fate would have it, Ernie would beat his roommate to the majors. And, and, and Ernie would go on to have a Hall of Fame career. Elson Howard, unfortunately and sadly, toiled in the Yankees minor league system because they converted him to a catcher. Well, if your catcher is Yogi Berra, you ain't ever going to get a chance <laughs> to catch. And, and so, but when Ellie does come up to the Yankees, and gets this opportunity, he becomes the heart and soul of those Yankee teams, the first MVP, African-American MVP, in the American League. Now, you have to remember that AL was so much slower in bringing black talent up. Uh, 
as opposed to the National League, which explained why the National League started dominating because they were bringing those black stars into the fold. And so, yeah, there's a lot to learn as it relates to all of the players who transition into the major leagues. As a matter of fact, we just opened a new exhibition after we reopened, you know, after being closed for three months due to the pandemic. Well, we just opened a new exhibit called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit, guys, chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson in 1947 through Elijah Pumsey Green being the last to break the, the, the barrier with the Boston Red Sox in 1959, 12 years later. Mm-hmm. And, and as we so typically do in our society, we always remember and celebrate the first. We never remember the second guy. And if you number 16, you can pretty much forget it. <laughs> and, and so, But I can tell you this, it didn't get any easier for Pumsey Green in Boston in 1959 than it did for Jackie Robinson with Brooklyn in 1947. They all went through their personal trials and tribulations as they tried to carve a path into Major League Baseball and fulfill their dreams. And and so it was important for us to tell those stories because I feel wholeheartedly if we don't tell the story, who will? And so that exhibit just opened. It's a beautiful exhibition that will shed light on all of those baseball pioneers. And, of course, Ernie is included in that story. Bob, you're on the board for Music City Baseball, of course, trying to get a team in Nashville, Tennessee. And obviously the big push for this Nashville team, they want to call it the Nashville Stars after the former Negro League team that played there once upon a time. And they're also obviously wanting to make sure that a minority majority owner is in charge of this franchise should it get it. Um, what can you tell us about the movement for what could potentially happen about getting a team in Nashville? And what does it say about where we are now today and how important this sort of movement is to make sure these things are recognized to have an owner in place who is a majority minority owner and to be able to honor a Negro League team from the past as its name in the Nashville Stars? Yeah, well, first of all, it'll be historic because it'll be unprecedented. It'll be the first time ever that a Major League team had adopted the name of a former Negro League team. And and certainly, I'm very proud to be a part of this effort, and the Negro League Baseball Museum is very proud to have a partnership role in this effort. So I can tell you from the Negro League Museum's position and perspective, this is literally a game changer because as a a small not-for-profit organization, you're always in search for what will create perpetual revenue as you try to secure the long-term future of this great museum. And so our partnership and, and potential licensing agreements that will come along with that would do just that. But the other aspect, which is so vitally important, and that's why we're hopeful that Major League Baseball will look favorably at this opportunity. Number one, Nashville is poised and ready. That city is absolutely on the rise. It it is an amazing city that we all have no doubt will support Major League Baseball as evidence how it has supported hockey and football in that great city. But the aspect that you talk about, 
what a tremendous opportunity to make a very bold statement. Baseball was at the forefront of change when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. It has done a wonderful job in terms of that from that from a historical perspective of being one of the most diverse, if probably not the most diverse sport of them all. But what a tremendous message it will send in terms of its true embracing of culture and heritage if we can create a team that is named in honor of the Negro Leagues that, as you touched, would have majority-minority ownership in that team and can start to be a part of the solution of bringing the African-American fans back to our sport and also making sure that every effort is in place to create that pipeline of great black talent playing our game again as well. So, yeah, there's a lot invested in this effort. There's a lot riding on this effort that, like I said, would be an absolute game changer in many respects, but certainly as it relates to the long-term future of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So, Bob, we, uh, you know, we're in the midst, um, and we're always in the midst of, of this dialogue and this discussion. It depends on what's going on in society and how amplified that is, if I could say that. I, I did a, I do a, a side uh, podcast called the Leader Chat Podcast, and I had uh, uh, Lawana Harris on as a, as a guest, and she, she uh, wrote the book Diversity beyond lip service. And one of the things she said to me, which was so striking, she said, we've got to stop calling people out and instead calling them in to have the conversation and to have the dialogue and create that awareness. When you look at where society could go and you look at where baseball potentially could take society, um, you know, what is your dream? What's your vision for, for today's time, for um, a more just, a more, uh, you know, really moving forward with, uh, bringing people together in, in a better way? Because as, as we all know, there's a lot of division in this world right now. What do you envision? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, this is as divisive a time as we've seen. And uh, there are so many things that remind us of the 1960s that are happening right now, particularly around this, this realm of social injustice and this effort to try and rid our society of this kind of heinous mindset that unfortunately there are still many that carry. And, and, and I think baseball plays an important role. And I think this museum plays an important role. You both well know this museum is indeed a social justice museum. It is a civil rights museum. It is just seen through the lens of baseball, of national pastime. And I just believe wholeheartedly that you cannot just see one side of my story. So if you want to understand the black experience in this country, I don't want the only aspect that you see of me is those scenes of me being sprayed by water hoses, having the dogs released on me the police brutality that unfortunately has manifested itself through time from those days of the civil rights struggles into present time, which is what has us at this brink where we are right now. But you also need to see my success stories. You need to see my triumphs. And the story of the Negro Leagues is just that. 
It is a tremendous story of triumph over adversity. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the way we treat the story, we almost de-emphasize the baseball aspect of this in lieu of the story, a very powerful, compelling, inspirational story of what these courageous athletes did in the face of adversity. And, And so you need to see that side of me as well. There's a balance that goes along with it as we ultimately try to create common ground. And again, what sports in general and baseball in particular has done is it helps us understand that we have far more in common than we do differences. But sadly, there are so many who run from people who are different. Yeah, we should be embracing our differences, not running from them. And so if you don't talk like me, you don't act like me, you don't think like me, you don't worship where I worship, then you must be bad. No, we have to become more tolerant of one another. And and I think embrace those differences and and somewhere find a wherewithal to to simply judge people on who they are. Or as my friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill would say that his father told him when he was a boy, treat every man the way you want to be treated, the golden rule. Now, you know we all know the golden rule. We just don't all live the golden rule. But if we could take just something as simple as that and let that govern the way that we treat one another in this world, this world will be a much better place. But until that time, you know, we have to deal with the systems that allow for these kinds of things that have occurred and reared their heads that have been going on for quite some time. And, And so we have to deal with this systematically. And I don't know if I'll change people's hearts. I hope that we do with the story that we present here. Unfortunately, hate is a learned behavior. And there are those who are still teaching hate in our society. So I don't know if I'll change your heart. You know, I hope somewhere along the line that we will. But what we do know, and that's why I still am I'm so hopeful and optimistic by the passion that we're seeing demonstrated by so many young people who are engaged in this process now, dealing with issues in and around social justice for the first time in their lives, that we will fix the systems that allow people to circumvent some of the things that they should be doing and and holding people accountable for their actions. I I think that is a very attainable goal. And, And hopefully in that process, we will create just a level of respect and tolerance for one another. Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. I implore anybody who has not been there to check it out. It is, uh, as Bob you know, said earlier, it is not just a baseball museum. It's a civil rights museum. It's, it's a history lesson all in one. Um, you can find Bob on Twitter at NLBMPrez. Check it out. Be a part of what this is all about, the 100-year anniversary of the Negro Leagues. Bob, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the Friendly Confines. We would love to have you back, uh, bearing your schedule sometime. But thank you for talking to us, and we wish you the best and continued success with everything with the Negro Leagues Museum. Guys, hey, I appreciate the opportunity. want to remind everybody you know, to tip their cap in honor of the Negro League. The campaign is still ongoing. So take a photograph or a video, 
posted at photos at tippingyourcap.com, and the website is tippingyourcap.com. Go see an amazing group of folks who are paying tribute and respect to the Negro Leagues with just a simple tip of the cap. Hi, this is Andre Dawson, and you're listening to Ryan and Chad on the Friendly Confines podcast. And our thanks to Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Museum. Bob was so gracious with his time. Such an awesome interview. Chad, that was honestly one of my favorite interviews. He's he's so wonderful as a storyteller. I mean, I could have honestly listened to him for hours. And he was just so great to uh, really hear about the history of the game of baseball and what it's all about. I I think we need to take the Friendly Confines podcast on the road and, uh, you know, maybe to Kansas City and, and uh, do some you yeah. know, do some stuff from there. I think that would just be apropos at this point. Well, well what I love about it, and you're right, um, so many great stories. I love this story uh, about Ernie. Um, and and what, what is great, you said you, you wish you could have heard more. And so that's what our listeners were, were pretty excited about. And it's kind of a bit of a preview of what's to come with the Friendly Confines Cubs podcast is – so next week, I don't know if you've noticed, our listeners have noticed that we've been doing these special editions where we've been taking the uncut um, interviews with the, these folks. So we just heard, you know, uh, a snippet and we have a much longer piece with with Bob coming up that's going to air next week or rather um, this uh, in the middle of of, uh, of of the next week. So you'll see that if you're a subscriber, you'll see it come up. We welcome you to listen to it. There's a whole bunch of new uh, content. And what I say is kind of a precursor or a preview of what is to come. Our hope is, um, you know, when this season ends in November, um, these are the sort of interviews that we want to bring to you going forward. The interviews that interest us, then we think the conversations will in turn interest you so we're excited about that so if you want to follow ryan we always like to use this time to say find him on twitter he's at ryan d lieber um you can find me at the chad gordon and of course you can always find us at the chicago cubs friendly confines um facebook headquarters you can find that by looking for the chicago cubs friendly confines on facebook and make sure you look on the announcements we've got a tremendously fun contest we would love for you to enter just a game for I've seen other teams and it's never the same when you're born in Chicago you're blessed and you're healed the first time you walk into Wrigley 